Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. And with me here today from Australia, where it is nighttime, and it is very early right now, I want to say, uh, is Jody Inglis. Jody is a genetic counselor in the Department of Cardiology uh, at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital with more than 17 years experience working with families with inherited heart disease. I want to come right back to that 17 years, but I'll give the rest of your introduction. She's the head of Clinical Genomics Laboratory at the Center for Population Genomics at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. And her team is focused on finding ways to use cardiac genomics and genetic counseling to improve care, clarify diagnosis, and refine risk information and implement those findings into clinical care, a very important piece. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite. So, so I was thinking about this last night, Jody. <laughs> 17 years. I remember going to a talk on cardiogenics, and it, 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 it was a while ago. It was a long time ago, but it wasn't 17 years ago, right? Maybe it was 13 or 14 years ago. And it was after yeah. the Human Genome Project, and I was at the annual conference, and I was like, oh, there's a thing on cardiogenetics. Let's go see if that exists now. Let's see if that's a thing, if we have anything to tell anybody. And I went and I sat through like an hour and a half, and it was actually really interesting. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, yeah, no, nothing. We have nothing to tell anybody. <laughs> it's not a thing <laughs> yeah. yet. Yeah. And yeah. I, and then I thought, you're, so you were working with families. Like, um, what drew you into cardio? And, and, and what did you learn in those early years when, when we had so little to offer? Oh, it, so firstly, people don't ever appreciate what that landscape was like 17 years ago in cardiac genetics. And that is that you, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it was like. It didn't exist. Um, I got into cardiac genetics straight from the end of my, um, at the time it was a grad dip of genetic counseling. And it was after six months, it was the first job that I got because there weren't many genetic counseling positions around in 2003 and it was a research role um, and I started seeing families with a cardiologist Chris Samsarin who had just returned from Harvard Medical School to set up his lab and he was interested in inherited heart diseases started seeing families and you could just see the gap immediately there were families that were doing genetic testing by sending samples to um, the Seidman lab at Harvard Medical School we were getting gene results after about two years. There was inheritance risk. There was need for educational material, which I wrote in my first few months there. It, I mean, it was a genetic counseling job that I walked into, but no genetic counselor had ever really done it. I think that there were a handful of cardiac genetic counselors working at the time. I think Julie Rutberg in Canada was maybe one of the first, but I, I of course, didn't know these people. And so, you know, we just had to find a way in the dark. And eventually, you know, over time, we, we started to meet all these people and to now see that there's, you know, over 100 cardiac genetic counsellors on the NSGC SIG is mind-blowing. It's totally mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a real thing now. And I yeah. I, <laughs> I do think I've, I read a couple of books lately about sort of looking at scopes of things since the Human Genome Project, and I, I think it's incredible how long ago it seems that we like how recent this all this 
how recent mm. so much of what we do is and, and because it feels very fixed in place. Like, of course, it's a thing. Yeah. But I wondered, so I've, I've heard you talk and I was very impressed with what I would call your whole person approach to um, cardiac counseling. You, you talked a lot less about what genes were involved and a lot more about, well, I'm going to let you do this, but finding the right moment, how to talk to people and so on. I wonder if that was forged in a time where there weren't genetic findings to give people. Yeah, actually, that's probably a really good point. I suspect that probably is true to an extent. I think it's funny, though, because people say to me now, what do you do? And my first answer is I'm a scientist. And that's, you know, that's what I absolutely love to do. And then second, I'm a genetic counselor. And I, th I think for me in my head, I'm, I'm in, in that order. I'm really, I want to know answers to things. And I think it's some people are just naturally drawn to wanting to know answers and, and, um, you know, and I, and I guess I sort of see it as a bit of a partnership. You know, the people that you're getting the answers for are the ones sitting in front of you in clinic. And, you know, as a genetic counselor, we've just got such a unique perspective of their needs. The clinicians, don't necessarily have the time or the relationship with these people. Like we see what their biggest needs are. And even though they might be there for genetics or for cardiology, there's other things going on that are just way more pressing. If they've got really, you know, unmanageable post-traumatic stress from, you know, getting an ICD shock from their defibrillator, you can't, you can't manage anything else until that's taken care of. If they can't adjust to their diagnosis, if they've, got prolonged grief or you know really having a really hard time after a young sudden death in their family it doesn't matter how clever your genetic test is um it, because it, none of it will matter unless we can help them out yeah yeah i i think that's an incredible point and i'm wondering so you uh fly in a circle of pretty seriously big scale genomics researchers <laughs> recently gone to work recently with Dan MacArthur, who we were talking about before this started as sort of one of the, the, the giants of the big scale genomic research, the, the bioinformatics people. And so do you feel like you bring that perspective in as a genetic counselor working in, in genomics? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, you have to really get over your imposter syndrome when, when you're, you know, in a room with Daniel and, and others because they're just incredible people. But, but you do soon realize that that patient perspective and the, the ability to implement findings, um, is actually really needed and really valued and respected. And so, um, but then also as well, having enough of the science understanding. So, you know, um, Having, having enough of, the un, of understanding of, you know, what sort of research is needed, um, you know, how to interpret genetic test results, what the methods are, what's the problem with the stats, you know. I think as well that kind of combination of knowledge is really helpful. I'm never going to be the best statistician. I'm never, ever going to understand anything bioinformatics as much as I will try. But um, I think at least having high-level knowledge of some of those things is really important. This I actually think is the, the, the beauty of genetic counseling. If anybody's a genetic counselor out there or a student or wants to be a genetic counselor, 
I think what people often underestimate is the power of standing at the nexus of several things. So it's true that you might not be as comfortable with the, the bioinformatics piece of it as a bioinformatician. And you know what also is true is that you are not a counselor in the way that somebody whose sole job is counseling. But there aren't very many people who sort of keep one leg in that world and one leg in the clinical world and one leg in the research world that makes three legs, which is a bad analogy. <laughs> I've just, but right. So, so but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think people underestimate how powerful that is because of the perspective you bring. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't think I've even fully appreciated that perspective of it either. And I think I've kind of had a real identity crisis over the last few years in working out what I'm doing. I mean, I do projects on, you know, on um, understanding clinical genetics and, and variant interpretation and other projects where I'm trying to do understand psychological well-being and I'm like I feel like I'm confused and I don't know what I'm doing but but actually I think I know exactly what I'm doing I'm answering questions that the patients need answers for and actually I wish you'd talk I wish you'd said that to me about two years ago because you might have saved me having to work all this out on my own but I do, and right now I feel totally comfortable in my own skin and my own right as a researcher and a genetic counselor. That that's yeah, exactly my place. This is the this is the Beagle has landed podcast and therapy hour. So and therapy yeah. session. Welcome. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to um, talk a little bit more about the cardiogenetics because though it is now. It is both common and new, right? Like it's, it's like, okay, we know it's a thing. A lot of people do it. It's a great area to be in. I, I think these areas that are relatively new offer a lot of independence and, um, uh, are a great place for someone with an enormous amount of curiosity and drive. That would be you. So no more imposter syndrome since you're the person that so many people <laughs> in this field look up to. Uh, but so we have, we have generally what breaks down into two types of inheritance single gene Mendelian inheritance, which is relative, relatively rare things, and complex multifactorial inheritance that is, if not diagnostic, mostly diagnostic, much less rare, and so on, common diseases. And like cancer susceptibility, a lot of cardiac susceptibility falls into like an, a middle space where it is neither diagnostic nor rare which I, mm. I think is interesting, right? It's just like middle space. So um, yeah. So how does that inform a discussion about risk? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we've, we're having some big changes in our field at the moment because even in the inherited cardiac clinic, we're starting to see papers published on polygenic risk scores and um, – and we know that a single monogenic variant doesn't explain everything that we're seeing in our families. Why does one person die suddenly and another has absolutely no clinical disease? And why can't we better predict that so that when we're doing cascade genetic testing, we can say, well, we think that you, you are at increased risk or, you know, you do carry this variant, but Others, other factors suggest that you probably aren't at increased risk and maybe you can continue to play high level sports. And, you know, there's so much about what we do that is really, really gray at the moment. And that's a really difficult thing to convey to people because, you know, we offer this really great 
once once we've got a genetic result in a family, we offer cascade testing to family members, which is, you know, one in two chance and and all of that. But the people that carry the genetic change, we are like we really don't know whether they will develop it or not. And actually, what we're seeing is that a lot of people don't, and you know, that's that's it's not that helpful for, for families. You think to yourself, would that person have been better off not knowing this at all and just continuing their life? not knowing it. I don't actually believe that's true, but, but you do have to think about, you know, both sides of, of the equation. So I think that's really interesting about polygenic risk scores. So a moment of healthy debate about whether or not we should be using polygenic risk scores in a clinical setting. And I personally think it's a bad idea to generalize. So let's just talk about using polygenic risk scores for heart disease. Well, I think there's a case to be argued, but I actually think that what you just described may be the earliest use that makes sense, which is not stratifying the whole population, mm. which, by the way, they do pretty badly, right? Like, they, yeah, they just stratify, but, but because 20th percentile and the 80th percentile don't really change all that much. But if you're looking at a, a group that's already high risk mm. and you're using this to modify our understanding of what it means to be at high risk, because there are a lot of people, right, in who are who are told that they have a, a that they're at high risk, but you don't know within a big span what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, potentially in future, the the individuals who the family members of an affected person with a monogenic, say, inherited cardiomyopathy, they might carry the the variant um we would say to them now well maybe you'll develop that into the future but you know potentially not too far off in the future we might be able to say and also you've got a high polygenic risk score so we do think that this is probably a real risk and and really you should be very careful about um you know hypertension or obesity or you know other environmental things that can put extra load on the heart you know, that we know that can in small amounts contribute to additional stress on the heart. I mean, none of that really is founded in much evidence at the moment, but you can see that that's a pathway potentially in future. And it's it's actually exciting in our field to think in inherited heart diseases, I mean, we say that there's nothing anyone can do about it, but, you know, if you're, if you're able to give patients some something that they can modify themselves, lifestyle or you know, health behaviors, you know, in the general community, that doesn't seem to actually affect much, you know, meaningful behavior change. But I'm really interested in, you know, in a, in a group of people who think that they have this sort of, um, you know, genetic predisposition to develop something that's out of their control. If you say to them, stay healthy and do these things, I suspect that they will do that (laughs) because they suddenly have control and, you know, it actually potentially opens up some exciting ways of, of being able to communicate and manage these patients. So that's interesting to me because I have always used eat your vegetables and exercise as sort of a joke line. And what mm. I mean by it being a joke line is if the answer we're giving people is eat your vegetables and exercise, A, they knew that already and B, they weren't going to do it, right? So that like, yeah. like if they if they hadn't already done it, they weren't going to do it because everyone is healthier if they do that. So, yeah. So it's a and and, yeah. and so you're you saying really is no. You're saying is but we don't really know. 
Well, we, I don't think we do, not in this population. And the other side of that is, would you really tell someone who has a low polygenic risk or, well, don't worry, you know, you've probably got low risk. You can, you, you don't have to worry about Smoke. potential modifiable <laughs> risk factors. I mean, that doesn't make any sense either because we know that there's such, I mean, in, in regular cardiovascular disease, they're such strong predictors. Um, so it, it's, it's an interesting field. I, I'm interested to see how this, pans out i'm interested to understand how we communicate monogenic and polygenic risk together um yeah it's interesting times i think yeah yeah i i i think that's funny if you're in the bottom 10th percentile of the polygenic risk could be like smoke if you got them <laughs> that's what it comes <laughs> like your report you comes back and it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> here's your report and here's a, a chocolate eclair and smoke if you yeah. got them. No, that's at the point is that that that's it. It's not a good advice for anybody. Uh, but, but so you've, you've looked at another um, way of getting at the question of why the outcomes differ among family members and that's collecting data. So you want to talk mm. a little bit about the share registry? Yeah, the share registry is, um, is awesome and I guess you know um, full disclosure that I do get research grant support from my formerly myocardia um, soon to be um, grant support from Bristol Myers Squibb for my contribution contributions to the share registry so I do feel like I need to say that up front but the share registry has been this incredible initiative really driven by the investigators and the sole purpose of it is to put together this cohort of an international cohort of um, individuals with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and starting to grow into dilated cardiomyopathy as well. I think at the moment we've got over 8,000 individuals in this registry and that gives ridiculous power to actually answer some really key questions. And probably the most fun part about it is we have this monthly investigator call, which I join at like 5 a.m. or something. <laughs> but it's probably my favorite meeting of the month because it's these incredible people that are, you know, giants in the field and, and we all get on this call and talk about, you know, the research projects we do, we're doing with the data and everyone gives input and um, it's just a really collegial, fun group to work with and that makes such a difference in research. But the the findings that are coming out from the work being put in is also really having a big impact on the field. Yeah. And so when we discover somebody carries, you know, a genetic, well, sorry, we have a molecular diagnosis for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, no symptoms. Do we just tell that person, don't do high level sports? Don't, what, what, what is there, what do we have to offer them is what I'm asking. Yeah. So 17 years in the 17 years I've been doing this, this conversation and answer has changed a lot. Um, and I think we've seen the move from, I guess, that paternalistic approach of cut down all, you know, risk and tell people not to do high-level competitive sports to now, I guess, there being more evidence that we don't really know that there's such an increased risk and probably the risk of getting other lifestyle diseases in future is probably greater than the risk of sudden death. Um, and so there's a much, um, I guess, bigger push now to let people continue to do their sports or whatever it is they do, but in a, I guess in a bit more of a monitored um, 
environment. But, you know, trying to make people not scared about thinking that they're going to die suddenly as soon as their heart rate gets up because that's really, you know, dysfunctional for regular life. That's not <laughs> how anyone should live their life when it's such a low risk. Yeah. Um, and what about for other conditions? Has that also changed a lot in 17 years, what we have to offer them? Yeah. I mean, the lifestyle advice, I guess, is one aspect. Um, it's, there's an interesting um, area in arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy where um, research, which which has also been led by um, a genetic counsellor, Cindy James at, at Johns Hopkins, She's really shown that high-level exercise in that setting, especially in people with PKP2 variants, um, actually probably brings on the disease. And so um, for that group of people, it's really, really important that they understand that they are at risk of this condition because I guess their dose of exercise that they do during their life will probably influence how severe their disease will be and, and when it will when its onset will be. Um, so that can actually, you know, potentially change the trajectory um, for some people. So I wanted to ask you about being in Australia. Mm. <laughs> sort of a little off topic, but what is it like sort of, you know, interacting with the world from the way down here, way down there? <laughs> I, 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 so, okay, it's seven o'clock in the morning. I don't normally do interviews at seven o'clock in the morning. So it brings it to mind that you deal with this all the time. Yeah. Also, congratulations. You're, you're, uh, you're handling COVID better than everybody else. So you have like a regular life now, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole, um, podcast in itself. We are hand, we did handle COVID very well. Our state, um, our state premiers manage the situation very well. We now have basically zero tolerance for risk. And so anytime there's one new case, cities go into lockdown and borders close, and that's not a nice way to live. And our federal government's not doing very well with the vaccine rollout. So potentially I'm going to be a very, very long way away from the rest of the world with closed borders for much longer than you all will be. Um, but anyway, hopefully I get back to see you all soon because yeah, you're right. From down here, um, it actually never felt like far before because I would travel so much during the year. I would see people in Europe and the US, the US especially, multiple times a year, and I felt really connected to the world. Now, you know, all of my connection to the world is at like 5 a.m. or, you know, trying to, trying to do virtual presentations at 8 p.m. at night while I've got a dog running around barking and a 12-year-old wanting wanting things off me and it's just a nightmare. Honestly, I can't wait till this is over. <laughs> uh, yeah, I imagine that you could feel quite, quite far away. Like it's uh, revamping how we look at the world. And a lot of people say we won't go back to as much travel. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably true. And I think some of the virtual stuff, I mean, we've definitely gotten a lot of value out of ways to be connected that we might not have ever appreciated before so you know I've I've changed definitely the way my research group works we do a lot of work from home I think we'll go back to more being at work together but it, I don't think it will ever be full-time you know for a long time um, I've now got two people that live in a different city and and they they manage to work in my team you know two hours north of where we are and we have face-to-face -face occasionally but it doesn't make any difference 
it's amazing how many things it doesn't make every any, any difference. Although I I have to say that uh, I could have. I think an entire sitcom could have been written about my experience getting my mother's book club on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) My mom is well into her 80s. and uh, That's amazing. That was a highlight, yeah. The first time I tried to set my mother's book club up on Zoom, I sent around the link, and my mom didn't understand about the link. And she literally went to the Zoom website and clicked the button that says start a meeting and waited for everyone to show up. She just started a meeting all by herself. And then I called her. I'm like, Mom, why aren't you on the call with your friends? And she said, I'm here in Zoom. I'm here in Zoom. No one else is here. That's so sweet. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's so nice, though, that, that, you know, that people can be connected like that. It's amazing because... Yeah, it, it instantaneously has become our staple. Um, yeah, and yet, had this happened what five years earlier? Yeah, yeah, it would have been totally different, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We wouldn't even know what's going on in Australia. You guys could be well, know, right? Beating each other riding, with clubs, it, nothing. Riding our going. kangaroos around, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you can't do that, right? <laughs> no, you, you can't. You actually wouldn't want to. They're pretty scary looking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I I knew you couldn't. I just just for the record, I did know that you can't ride a kangaroo. So you have been to Australia, right? I've never been to Australia. Okay, all right. Well, we'll we need to sort that out seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, post COVID, right, right now your borders are closed, but I would yeah. love to, I would love to come there. Um, I I would love to come there. It's like understand it's the most incredible landscape i'm a little unnerved by the fact that like there's like 25 things that can kill you in the yeah. world and like 23 of them are from australia or something like that. yeah 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 and i get unnerved by that too but that's fine <laughs> we <laughs> okay we just stay away from them <laughs> <laughs> okay if you say so one of the things you mention as an interest just to bring it back to cardiology here for a minute, are the the health disparities issue. Mm. And you're currently trying to make the databases bigger, but how much of a problem is it right now? Like how, when, if, if you test somebody, how much does their genetic ancestry uh, determine the likelihood that you're going to be able to be useful to them? So I guess this is an answer that's not even specific to cardiac. I guess it's across the board. But um, anyone, you know, who gets tested and their, and their, I guess their ancestry is not in one of the well-represented um, population databases, the chance of finding an informative result, so I guess a likely path or a path variant, is um, much, much lower. The chance of finding a variant of uncertain significance that we don't really know how to interpret is much higher, like nearly double even. And we've got examples of, um, we've got one really good example of a variant in troponin T, which is a sarcomere gene, which to all intents and purposes looks like it's a causative variant. And um, when we started gathering the data together for it, there were about 20 probands that we came across that all had either hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or sudden cardiac death. And I, 
there was something that was a little bit off about it and we started collecting the um, ethnicities of these patients. Turned out they were all from Pacific um, regions, so Hawaii, Tonga, Samoa, um, New Zealand, Maori, and, you know, it was very consistent. And so there's no population reference database for that group. We went and found a couple of research groups that have done sequencing in different parts of that area and found that it's a common SNP essentially up to about 7 or 8% in those populations. And, you know, that has potential to have real harm. <laughs> and, you know, it's the fact that we don't recognise this is an issue. Um, and how many more of those? I've got another one at the moment I'm trying to find population reference database for um, for Middle Eastern populations because we've got a, a big Middle Eastern community in Australia and another variant that looks causative that a few labs have called causative and, and we're not quite sure. The jury's out on that one. But, you know, if we had the databases, it would actually really um, minimise the chance of misclassifying them and minim minimise the harms. Um, and I think it's not even just that. I mean, there's so much research at the moment going on about genotype phenotype correlations and understanding you know how different variants can give worse outcomes and and you know I think over the next five years there will be a shift in our field where genetic testing doesn't just you know isn't just used for cascade testing of relatives but actually can guide clinical management of the proband and and even guide therapies um but you know, at the moment, that's only going to be realised for white people because we won't understand near enough in in other um, less well represented populations. And you know, I even I try to avoid saying underrepresented because it sounds like there's so few people in those groups, but it's not. I mean, the the white people are in the minority, <laughs> and yet there's so much overrepresentation. And you know, when when you're seeing the harms of that you know, nearly day in and day out when you look hard enough makes you realise how big of an issue it is and we really need to address it. And what is that, what form is that when you say you really need to address it? Like, do you have resources in Australia to reach out to those populations and say, we need to get samples? Yeah, so the it's, a, it's an interesting question and I think probably the answer to that is going to be very multifactorial and complex. Um, some of the things that are being done, so the Daniel MacArthur and the Centre for Population Genomics are hoping to set up a um, national reference database that will better represent some of these populations, and that includes a lot of community consultation, um, which will be challenging. Um, but also it's the researchers as well. You know, if we're putting together a cohort or or something, you know, we need to make sure that we're getting diversity in the in participants. And I mean, it even comes down all the way to the research teams. We need diversity in the research teams because then people are more likely to stand up and say, wait a minute, this isn't right. We need to be better representing this group or we need to be doing better here. So it's kind of diversity at every single point. And that's actually not an easy thing to solve. Um, so I actually don't know how we solve this, but I think talking about it more and finding ways that at least help is probably at least a good first step. Yeah. Well, here we we have the um, the All of Us project is, which is obviously making a very conscious effort to create a database that actually looks like America. And I think they're mm. off to a great start. Uh, 
uh, having seen some of the numbers in, in terms of recruitment, but it took an incredibly self-conscious effort. It definitely didn't just kind of happen. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's a very, I think this requires very conscious efforts all along. And that's why I think the more we address it and the more we raise it, the more we make people realize that we will get to a point where there are different parts of the population that do not benefit from, you know, genetic discoveries that I think that that makes it very real for people. Yeah. Uh, you said something when we were emailing back and forth before we started this interview that amused me because it's exactly what I think about genetics. Apparently, we have the same philosophy of genetics. You said, you're always thinking about how so many times in our field we ended up thinking we understand something, but actually it turns out we were totally wrong. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, I have always yes. said that if I wrote a textbook on genetics, which God forbid, by the way, but if I wrote a textbook on genetics, it would call it, it turned out to be more complicated than we thought. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I will write a chapter for it. <laughs> Guess right? what? We were wrong, right? So yeah. you've touched on that a little bit because you've said that uh, over the years, I don't know anybody who's been in cardiogenetics longer, which is amazing because <laughs> I'm looking at Jody and she looks like 12. So I don't understand. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. But, um, and you said that one of the ways is that you, that, the, the, the starting in early days is, oh, we, you're at risk. Don't do all these things. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. and, and now you're sort of stepping back and thinking like, well, make a calculated decision about it because we don't, we don't really know how it's going to affect you. Mm -hmm. um, is there any, any other ways where, where we were just really wrong? Yeah. I mean, the, the genetics is the biggest one, I guess, that is my, um, is my real issue. I think when you work in a field with clinicians, and don't get me wrong, I, I love the medical people in my life, but they're so certain about everything. <laughs> and I think that the longer, you know, as genetic counsellors that, that we're in this field, the only thing that I learn is that we don't know anything. Like, we know jack shit, really. <laughs> and the more we pretend that we actually think we know what we're doing, the more eventually we realize, wow, we were really, really, really wrong. And so with genetics, you know, five years ago, it was pretty common, maybe a bit over five years ago, it was pretty common when somebody died suddenly it, and, the, and no cause of death was found, so a young person, um, we would do genetic testing of four genes. They were basically long QT genes. And um, any variant that was found was the cause because all of those deaths were basically due to long QT syndrome. And we've got so many variants that, have now, that are now being reclassified because they're not the cause. And, I mean, maybe they are modifiers in some way, but there's no way we can prove that at this point in time. And what we're finding is when we actually take away these preconceived, um, you know, beliefs that we have is that you can actually then step back and see the real truth. But when you look at something with a lens on where you think you know what you what you're doing you're blinded to what's actually happening and and I think you have to you have to accept that in genetics because you know we don't know what we're doing it's it's complicated and there's more layers of complexity that I think we uncover you know <laughs> talking about polygenic risk scores and you know things like that 
it's just, it's really complicated to sit in front of a family where there's, they've had a sudden death and say to them, well, actually 10 years ago when we did your genetic testing and we found this variant and we've segregated it through the family, actually it turns out that that's not the variant and we've, we've now found the variant and it's a totally different disease and actually dad, it's not you that carries it, it's mum and all those people that we released from your side of the family, now we need to bring them back and, and guess what? 50% of them are starting to test positive for that particular variant. And, you know, it's... This, you happens, to, this yeah. happens to you a lot, this, this particular scenario? Because that sounds awful. That's happened twice. Yeah. yeah, that's happened twice. And that particular scenario has happened twice. Um, but the, the gist of it happens regularly. So is it very hard? Because I feel like you're saying, <laughs> look... We, we sat down with you once and we're like, we figured it out. We solved the mystery. Trust us. And they did. You sit down a second and you're like, oh, we were wrong the first time. But this time we've really figured it out. We solved the mystery. Do you get an yeah. enormous amount of skepticism at that point in time? Well, so I always say, look, I realize it's pretty hard to have any trust in <laughs> what we actually can contribute at this point. But here's where the knowledge has moved to and this is why I think that we know more now than we did then and why I think we feel more confident now and I mean part of it as well I think is me being the scientist as well and I think you know working with in some of these areas you actually have to have knowledge of how we've gotten to this place in in why we believe this piece of knowledge is true because you know that if they're founded in really solid robust evidence and that's something that you can feel much more confident in but but, you know, things that have arisen out of those candidate gene days or, you know, or other other aspects of, um, you know, of science, I think we just need to be really careful. Yeah. Well, so maybe that is also a comment on polygenic risk scores where we sort of started talking about them. Yeah. I do think it's a problem we all face be partly because of the simple cascade of information situation, right? We have so much information where... Mm sorting it out as we go along and the pressure to turn an observation or a finding into something you can use in the clinic or sell in the marketplace is so intense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably very true. Um, yeah, maybe sadly, but I mean, it's exciting as well. It's hard not to get swept up in these discoveries. And I'm sure I've been guilty of this in the past. And, you know, there's always this, um, you know, this, this test when, when you've done something, um, when you've done the work and you've worked up this variant and it's in a relatively new gene and you're really confident in that result, when you go and explain to a colleague, well, actually I've got this variant and they've got this variant and it's this gene and they're nowhere near as sold on it as you are because, you know, you've built the story, you know, you've convinced yourself and you know, it's hard to then not get swept up in it. And you almost feel annoyed at the person. It's like, come on, this is exciting. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a hard thing. Um, science is hard. Genetics is hard. It's true. That is <laughs> true. Words were never spoken. Genetics. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> Seriously. We don't get enough sympathy, really, as geneticists, because it's so damn hard. Exactly. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, we are rounding up out of time. 
this has been fun. I'm awake. I, I enjoyed this. This was like a very good way to spend seven to eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, I, I, I'll wake up and, and interview you in my pajamas any day, Jody. Excellent. And I'll sit here in my pajamas and chat with you any evening. You know how Happy you can tell to. that it's nighttime there and morning here is we're both in our pajamas, but only Jody has wine. So. <laughs> And no one will be surprised when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> no one that no one that knows you will be surprised. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, definitely deserve it. Um, I look forward to the day when you can um, rejoin Western civilization in person. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you can call it civilization, I don't know. What feeling more like the wild, <laughs> wild west out here? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, <laughs> and I can't believe I just said yes. that to someone from Australia, where everything can kill you. Like, it's really yeah. crazy here, Jody. You don't know. <laughs> but you, oh, it's, honestly, you guys get the medal for crazy um, over the last eight, eighteen months or so. <laughs> yeah, <You> have crocodiles, <laughs> spiders, those box yeah. jellyfish. But we have the the politicians. Who, by the way, it's your mm. fault. You send us. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. Okay. <laughs> Quick, before I turn to politics, I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you, Jody. Thank you all for listening. Go to the website, BeagleLanda.com. Sign up. Follow me on Twitter, at Laura Hersher. All that good stuff. Take care and be safe out there, everybody. Summer is coming. Hang in there. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.